Hello, this is Fight Back, a podcast by the Healthcare Consumer Rights Foundation. I'm Steve Poisner, healthcare consumer advocate, founder, and executive director. Our nonprofit's mission is to help you navigate the healthcare system and understand your legal rights, options, and opportunities when you encounter problems and obstacles. We want to empower you with the information you need to fight back and get the best possible care. Do you ever feel overwhelmed trying to keep up with the latest information on COVID-19, its variants, the status of vaccines and treatment, how to stay healthy during this pandemic, or thinking about when this pandemic will ever be over? In our new COVID pandemic update series, we are privileged to have Dr. Brad Pollack join us on a regular basis to provide all of us with the most up-to-date information about all things COVID-19. Dr. Pollack is the chairman of the Department of Public Health Sciences and associate dean for public health sciences at the University of California at Davis School of Medicine. Let's get started. Dr. Brad Pollack, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Here we are in August of 2022, two and a half years into the pandemic, and none of us expected this thing to go on on as long as it has. So it's interesting that we still have uh, useful and important information to get out uh, about COVID. Well, indeed. In fact, a lot of people are now talking about the pandemic after the pandemic, you know, this problem with long COVID. What's the latest on long COVID? Is it as serious of a potential problem as we first thought? Well, you know, again, the jury is still a little bit out there where we are gathering information, trying to uh, figure out what the, the, you know, what the occurrence is of long COVID. You know, it's not, there's not a a consistent way of predicting who is going to be likely to get long COVID symptoms. Um, And the data really has not been uh, collected in a centralized way that we can really start developing some risk uh, models and so on. So, you know, again, jury's out. Uh, We know it's important. We know some people are, uh, in fact, having lasting effects. Uh, Whether they're going to abate or not, we're not sure. So I'd say we still have to follow this up and do a little bit more work to collect the information to figure out what's going on. But I know, you know, even anecdotally, a few of my friends were infected and one of them was telling me that they uh, they had an impact on their sense of smell and, of course, taste. Uh, but then um, as that came back, it's interesting because this person said there's certain uh, smells and tastes now that he does not have back. I mean, he can smell quite well, but there's a few in particular things there. So, you know, there may be longer, longer lasting effects. That wouldn't be a functionally important one. Um, but we're we're still trying to figure out, you know, whether people are at at uh, going to be at super high risk as you go out. I mean, that also, you know, bodes well for trying to focus on prevention here, trying not to get infected in the first place, which again, vaccination does reduce the risk of getting infected. And also, you know, trying to do all the non-pharmaceutical interventions, that's masking up, things like this. So it's better to not get infected, even though we do have treatment now, Paxlovid and other types of treatment for folks that do get infected, but better not to get infected in the first place because we just don't know what the long-term consequences are going to be with regard to long COVID. Right. And any insights yet into, you know, the differences by variant in terms of the potential, you know, impact on long COVID? Do, like, do certain variants lead to long COVID more than others? Do we know that yet? Yeah, we don't. 
Yeah, we don't have the data for that yet. I mean, that's people are going to be looking at that um, because we, we certainly know that the Omicron subvariants uh, that have developed certainly do not appear to be more virulent. They don't cause more disease or more severe disease. That's good, but we don't have any idea yet whether there's an association between a particular subvariant and your risk of long COVID. Uh, you know, we can make a generalization and say, well, if it doesn't cause that much severe disease in the first place, then you're less likely to have long COVID. But we don't know that. We don't have the evidence yet for that. I see. And if, even if you're asymptomatic, you still can possibly get long COVID. You could, but but again, you know, we'd like to have the data that says, gee, if you're asymptomatic, your risk is X, right? And if you are symptomatic, it's Y. And we don't have the information broken down that way reliably to be able to tell that. But yes, there's there's a risk that if you had an asymptomatic case or very, very mild case, you could still get long COVID. We don't, you know, yet have a way of predicting if you have really severe uh, infection, you know, lots of symptoms and maybe even um, you know, some major medical challenges. We don't know whether that correlates with really severe long-term disease. So, you know, we have to keep following the, these populations up to, to determine that. Now, is the BA.5 variant still the dominant variant today? It is for us. It's BA.4 and BA.5. Uh, BA.5 here in the United States, it has become the predominant uh, subvariant. And again, as we've talked about in earlier uh, programs, uh, if you've been infected with, let's say, the original version of Omicron, you know, you can readily get infected with one of these subvariants like BA5. And we're seeing people that were diagnosed, uh, you know, months ago, and now they're diagnosed again. They're positive. So that that um, just goes to prove that these subvariants and the evolution of the virus, it's getting <laughs> a little bit smarter as we move along uh, to be able to do what we call immune evasion. So the new subvariants try to evade your immune protection. Um, and again, by having these mutations occur in the virus itself, it sort of tricks the, um, the your body into saying, oh, I haven't seen this before, and let's go ahead and <laughs> have a full-blown infection. So so that's, that's one of the things that's really a little tough about um, COVID in particular is that these subvariants seem to be reinfecting people uh, pretty commonly if you are in a situation where you have a high risk of exposure. Now, yeah, um We've all heard now about a lot of people, you know, who, who've gotten COVID more than once. But if you if you have a particular subvariant, if you've been infected by, say, BA.5, can you get BA.5 again? Uh, we, we don't think so. I think that you, you will develop what they call a repertoire of antibodies that will be specific for this BA.5 if you have normal immune function. So the idea of getting reinfected with the same subvariant is very, very low probability, if, if not even possible. I'm not sure, but but it's not. That's not what's happening. What's happening is people again got infected with an earlier subvariant or the the original um, variant of concern of Omicron, and that's evolved now. The virus has evolved, and so you're getting this new subvariant exposure, which gets you infected. But uh, you know, you're not going to get likely you wouldn't get reinfected with the same subvariant because your immune system does learn from each infection. It's just that this virus has been so clever to go through mutations so that another subvariant that comes along that has a different protein sequence for the, the thing they call the, the uh, S protein on the, on the spike protein for the virus, 
it, it looks different enough so that your immune system doesn't recognize it. But it will recognize the thing that it was and you were infected with, and you will develop uh, antibodies uh, to sort of ward off that same infection. I see. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned uh, this is a super clear, uh, clever, sadly, virus here. I, the, the, the fact that it's improving in terms of its uh, ability to infect others in a, in, a, in a sophisticated way, is that, you know, uh, expected from evolution? I mean, the, the, that's what you would expect in, in, a, in a natural selection kind of, kind of way. Yeah, and and I I guess uh, I know we kind of use the word smart here. The virus is not smart. (laughs) It's it's just massive numbers. You know the the thing that these mutations occur. Some of them occur spontaneously, and those mutations. You know, you just have billions and billions of viral particles that are replicating, and uh, you know, a couple of them develop these mutations, and of course. Those mutations that are favorable for the virus are the ones that get selected out, and that becomes kind of a new subvariant, for example. So it's not really smart. It's just brute force of you know billions and billions of replications of a virus that lead you to this evolution. So, um, but it, it, that is what's going on. You're, you're seeing that the virus seems to be responding pretty quickly and developing mutations, uh, or I shouldn't say develop, but but having you know this natural selection of mutant uh, subvariants that occur that seem to evade the immune system. So in that sense, you're seeing pretty fast evolution. But remember, how many people have been infected? How many viral particles are there per person per infection? And just every time you're thinking about those viruses replicating, there's a chance for uh, a coding error in the RNA that makes up the, the genome of the virus. And those, those coding errors, some of them seem to be favorable and they get selected out. So that's really the natural evolution here. Interesting. I mean, it's the, the law of large numbers here, I guess, at work. But yeah. it is fascinating to see. I mean, this is evolution right in front of our eyes, right? Because, you know, sometimes evolutionary effects take so long, you know, over huge amounts sure. of time. And here we're seeing it happen. Yeah, I mean, there's other precedents for this. If you think about antibody antibody resistance, uh, antimicrobial resistance, right? You're giving, um, 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 you know, penicillin, for example. We know that you know bacteria can mutate pretty quickly to become resistant to penicillin and other antibiotics. So you do see this happening in a much accelerated fashion for people that have been infected with things, and you're trying to treat for that. Um, and that's why we have. Um, so many different antibiotics now, and we've kind of run out of those. We st- keep developing more and more resistant strains of bacteria, for example. And then, you know, now we're down to people developing some infections, for example, some of the hospital-acquired infections. We're using vancomycin, which is, you know, the almost the last line of defense here. So um, it's not an uncommon thing. Um, and I, I think we haven't seen quite this degree of mutation, I would say, for a virus but remember, again, that every year you've got different strains of influenza that develop, and that happens because the influenza virus, by its nature of how it replicates, it has a higher mutational rate than even uh, SARS-CoV-2 does. So um, that's why you know we, we keep trying to calibrate our in- influenza vaccines for the season coming up. Uh, trying to you know keep up with it, and some as you know some seasons we don't right we don't get the formula exactly right, so we don't have as effective of uh, vaccination for influenza as we'd like to have. Um, we're, we're in the same situation a little bit now with SARS-CoV-2, this virus, um, and I think 
one of the things, again, is that our vaccines have really been focused on targeting just the spike protein, right? In other words, that part of the virus is where the vaccinations actually work to create antibodies to knock out the infection. The, the problem is that may not be enough because we've seen that the spike protein seems to be an area where you have more mutations occurring. And so you're getting this constant churning and out, out, outsmarting. And so um, I think what's going to happen next is, you know, we are talking about having what we call bivalent vaccines available in the fall, where you'll have some specific pro programming in there for the Omicron uh, variant of concern. But even at that, we're not we're not exactly clear which subvariants that those vaccines will be programmed for. And then by the time we get large-scale vaccination, uh, vaccine production up, it may be that we're on to the next subvariant, and it may not be as effective. So that's one of the strategies that we are going to see in the fall, is to at least try to get um, vaccines that, that protect against the original Wuhan uh, version of the virus, as well as perhaps one or two or a couple of the subvariants of Omicron. Um, uh, there's also some other strategies that will look at targeting other proteins in the virus, uh, the nucleocapsid protein. Um, if you develop a vaccine that can t attack that at the same time as the spike protein, we might get a better handle of having vaccines that have a ro more robust and durable uh, protective response. But we, we, we're not quite there yet. I think there's work going on to look at targeting other proteins of the virus in addition to the spike protein to make the vaccines more effective. Brad, sounds like an arms race. It is. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Interesting. Um, so uh, speaking of this vaccine that might come out in the fall that we've all been reading about, um, so is there any information yet about what, what, how much time should, should go by before someone might want to get this new vaccine in the fall in, in terms of when they got the last booster vaccine? Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, the rules on the boosters are, are, you know, pretty well established right now that, you know, everybody who's five years of age and older should receive at least one booster if they've had one of the messenger RNA vaccines, you know, the Pfizer or the Moderna. Uh, so that's kind of a universal uh, recommendation. Uh, we also know that for those folks that are uh, 50 years of age or older, including myself, um, that we're recommended to have two booster doses. And that would actually be a lower age limit for the second booster dose, if uh, so, a twelve and older, if uh, somebody was moderately or severely immunocompromised. So right. the boosters are out there right now. I, I would say that if you're in one of those categories, if you've gotten one booster already and you're not, you know, you're not fifty or older, I, I wouldn't go out and get a second booster right now. Um, if you if everything, if everything else is okay and normal. Um, if, of course, you fall into one of these categories, and I do work in childhood cancer research, and so, you know, folks undergoing chemotherapy, for example, are immunocompromised, and there are many other conditions. So there, again, I would say rush out and get your second booster as long as it's done, you know, according to the schedule that they uh, post for that. Um, but if you're in that, you know, sort of lower risk category and you're not older um, and you got your one booster already, I'd say hold off probably till the fall. I know they're talking about October or November, but uh, there's some early information that looks like they may get a, a jump on that. And maybe in September, we'll have the, the new programmed, uh, the Omicron programmed vaccines available. So that probably makes sense. Again, I'm, I'm not giving medical advice. I'm just saying that in general, in terms of how these vaccines work, um, if you're not in a high risk category, 
but you've received at least your one booster dose, I'd say I would hold off until, you know, you're, you're, we're set with these new vaccines. I see. But otherwise, no, rush out, go ahead and get your booster. If you're not in one of those low risk categories, don't mess around, don't wait around. As long as again, you follow that schedule for spacing out your two booster doses uh, enough so that you're going to get that protection. So if you, if you, let's say you get a booster in August this month, and this this new Omicron Taylor vaccine comes out next month. I mean, is is that too close to, to get one in August and then another one in September? Do we know that yet? Well, we don't know that yet. And, and actually, it won't, it won't be coming out next month. It's not they're fast, but they're not that fast. So um, I think if people are getting boosted now, um, you, you know, I think they're fine. You're going to you're going to be looking at sometime in the fall, September or October or November. And that's, that's fine. You know, you're trying to spread things out. I got my second booster dose in April because I was getting ready to do some travel. I know I talked about it on one of our um, updates before. Um, And so, you know, I'm going to be out if, if I wait until the, uh, the fall, it'll be a six month interval time. And that's probably ideal for me, you know, to get that coverage. So there's no question that when you get a booster dose, you get this uh, sudden rush of, of antibodies that your body produces. You get a, a high titer, what we call that, of antibodies. And so that's good. And that's thought to be more protective and it wanes over time. So obviously kind of spreading out your vaccine doses, in my case, would be April to perhaps September, October. You know, that's that's probably a good interval of time there to get, you know, maximum coverage and so on. Um, I, I would, again, go back to things we've talked about earlier, which is getting fully vaccinated and getting a booster dose is going to help you enormously at preventing a serious infection. So you might still get infected. I know a lot of my friends have gotten infected probably with the newer subvariant, um, but they're, they're all mild cases. Nobody had to go to the hospital that I know, none of my friends, but they got infected. Um, and a couple of my uh, faculty here at UC Davis and, and some of our staff, they've gotten these uh, second Omicron infections, but they're not going to the hospital and they're not dying. Right. And so. And I think people really need to go back and think about what was the point of vaccination. As I think we talked about earlier, um, you know, we were hoping, but not convinced that we had the data for this, but hoping that you'd get what they call a sterilizing immunity from vaccination. We didn't. It turns out that you were able to get infected um, again or infected for the first time, even though you're vaccinated. But if you look at the mortality and hospitalization rates for people that were vaccinated, it's you know, orders of magnitude lower. So you're still very, very protected. Um, and then, of course, the, that shifts the responsibility that if you have happen to get an Omicron infection now, you know, you want to take yourself out of circulation. You don't want to be contaminating, uh, you know, spreading it to other people who may be more vulnerable. Um, so that's still, you know, good public health advice. But, you know, they it's like the president now is, is back uh, with his uh, Omicron infection and um, you know, he uh, tested positive after having his Paxlovid um, treatment. He kind of rebounded, and he's staying isolated right now, according to the CDC recommendations, because he doesn't want to infect other people. He's not, you know, got a trajectory that's going to put him in the hospital at all. Um, so, and I think that's really the more common, much more common case for people getting these Omicron infections now. If you've been fully vaccinated, you are really heavily protected against bad outcomes, and I want to encourage people to, to do that. In California, we're up to 90% overall full vaccination rates in the state. So very happy to see that here. Um, it's not necessarily consistent across the country, but uh, but high here. And I think that, that bodes well for, you know, seeing 
not a massive amount of uh, hospitalization and death. Right. And of course, it is a huge relief that uh, you know, uh, people are having to stay home for a couple of weeks and this flu-like symptoms, and then they're getting better. And, and the, yeah. the fact that the hospitalization rates are so much lower is, is great news. Yeah, and I'll just make one other comment. The hospitalization, hospitalization rates are going up in California and other parts of the country, and the deaths are going up, but that's just a simple math issue. If you've got so many more people that are infected, even if they're in mild cases, but overall, just having you know massive numbers of people that are infected right now means you're going to drive up those numbers. But uh, they're not being driven up because it's a, a, a more severe type of infection. Not not at all. It's just it just numbers there. But we really have not even come close to our hospital capacity now. I mean, that was the real key thing in the first part of the pandemic is is trying to bend the curve so we didn't overtax the healthcare facilities. And we are nowhere near that now. We've got plenty of capacity. Um, but, you know, numbers are going up. But uh, I'd say overall, as the cases are going up, you know, about half the um, in the last two weeks, really, uh, I'd say half the states have seen an increase in, in cases and the other half of the states have seen a decrease. Uh, we're kind of at a, you know, kind of at a probably a plateau point now or close to that um, with the number of cases. And again, one of our real big limitations is because there's so much more home testing with these rapid antigen tests that don't get reported. We can't rely as much on sort of the government state collected statistics on new cases, which were all originally done by PCR testing that had to be centrally reported. So we really have gotten farther and farther away from getting accurate estimates of how much you know infection there is in the population as we've moved to rapid antigen testing, which has become the predominant type of testing right now. So we, we have ways of kind of guesstimating what it is. Uh, right now, I'd say the infection rates are still very high around the country. Um, and uh, while we do see more cases coming into hospitals now, you know, it's it's not really posing the same sort of threat that it I did see. two years ago. And just to clarify, the, the number of hospitalizations in some places are going up, but that's due to the number of infections going up. You're saying there's no evidence that, that, that the percentage rate of hospitalizations has gone up. That's correct. Right. Exactly. Got it. Got it. So um, I've been reading about NOVIDs, you know, these people supposedly who've never been tested positive, or at least they, they've never known to be tested positive yet. But what do we know about these folks? Uh, any, yep, any I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm one of them. Yeah. To my knowledge, I've never tested positive. I've never experienced symptoms that made me think that I had a... Uh, infection. Um, so, so tell us, what, what, what's your secret? <laughs> well, first of all, I wouldn't put any money down on the fact that I wasn't infected. It may be very likely that I developed a subclinical infection and didn't know it. So the only way I would be able to, to examine that would be to do a blood test, which is called a serologic test, where they look at your, your blood for evidence of antibodies that have developed. And the antibodies they would look at would not be just antibodies to the spike protein, because that's what you're going to get from vaccination, but also the, the N protein, that nuclear capsule protein, that would tell me whether I had a natural infection of some sort you know, throughout the, the pandemic. Who, who knows? That could have been the case. But uh, there are many of us that you know, have not, has no evidence that we've been infected Again, doesn't mean that we're, we haven't been affected. We just don't know about it. And unless you were testing all the time, I was testing a lot. I mean, we were supposed to, uh, obviously, for work. And 
I was, was mandated here because I work in a health facility. Um, so I was pretty certain I didn't have um, any infection, but the, our testing frequency went down. The recommended testing now is not required. So I haven't been testing like every, you know, every three or four days with PCR tests as I did earlier on. So I don't know. But uh, again, there's a lot of us in that category that have not been knowledgeably infected, but you know, who knows? And um, and again, that also means that if I did have a subclinical infection, I could be at some risk for long COVID, um, but I'm not spending a lot of time worrying about it right now. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. So uh, President Biden, you know, had that rebound effect from the antiviral that he took. Uh, uh, and I hear from lots of people that their doctors are not prescribing the antiviral if they're in you know, good health and younger uh, any new information on on these antivirals, and are are there others in the works that may not have this rebound effect? Yeah, well, I think it's a good question uh, because there there has been uh, evidence of rebound, but I think the best estimates now that it may be no more than ten percent of all of the cases that have been treated with Paxlovid, um, and we don't really know why this rebounds happening and 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 it may it may it could be very complicated in terms of trying to figure out the mechanism here perhaps the antiviral that you're the antivirals you're getting with that treatment you know mean that you're not mounting a full-blown immune response yourself so that could be part of it uh, it could be a a testing uh, artifact that is that maybe you're suppressing uh, expression of the virus in the nasal cavity, you know, where you're going to do the sampling from now for most of the testing. So we, we don't know right now. It's about 10%. And it doesn't appear that the people that rebound have any worse prognosis than those that didn't rebound. So um, again, we're trying to gather the information to sort of refine that. Um, but, I, I, you know, the overall reduction in your risk of hospitalization and death for folks that were treated on the trial was about 89%. So if you're in the older age category or you have one of the other higher risk categories, like you're immunocompromised, the Paxlovid, you know, certainly sounds like a good idea. And, and again, it seems to be most effective if taken very early in the course of the infection. That is when you just become symptomatic and, and you're aware of the infection, not waiting until it's, you know, five, 10 days later. So uh, earlier interventions seems to, to improve the efficacy of getting Paxlovid treatment to reduce the severe disease. But again, the, the president's older and in that high risk category because of his age. Um, so it, 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 would, it, it did seem to make uh, good sense to be on it. But the fact that he rebounded doesn't really perhaps mean all that much in terms of the prognosis. Um, he seems to be doing quite well in isolation um, and um, will probably make you know a, a very speedy recovery and 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 be well off from that. So you know, uh, but in terms of refining that, and and you're right too that that you know nobody's sitting uh, resting on their laurels in terms of looking at new antiviral therapy. So uh, there's development going on there as well. And the other thing I, I will stress for folks that are also at high risk, and for example, cancer patients, we do have you know an evolution of different monoclonal antibody treatments now that are given as prophylaxis to prevent an infection for people that are immunocompromised. So if you're likely to undergo, if you're going to plan to undergo a chemotherapeutic regimen for cancer, um, they're, they're usually administering monoclonal antibodies now to provide that passive protection. Um, and that's an important thing as well. That won't help you too much once you've been infected, um, but it's, again, to prevent that initial infection. And that's another therapeutic modality for people that are you know, in really high-risk categories. I see. That's, that's good news uh, as well. 
let's just just switch briefly before we wrap up to a, another public health problem that's emerging here in, uh, in the country, and that's monkeypox. Um, yeah, Doctor Doctor Pollock, could you just describe you know some of the basics about monkeypox? I suspect a lot of our listeners don't even quite know why it's called that. What what is it, and and how dangerous is it right now? Well, it's that same same general class as smallpox. Um, and actually, for those of us old enough to have received smallpox vaccinations as kids, uh, younger folks, um, there seems to be some protection against monkeypox, uh, some cross-reactivity, um, although the vaccines developed for monkeypox specifically are probably more efe- efficient, more effective than than the general uh, smallpox that we got as kids. Um, but it's it's one of, this is a very different virus, no relation at all. Um, it's a virus that's spread mostly by contact from skin to skin contact or contact with um, fomites, you know, clothing, bedding material that may have uh, been contaminated by somebody who had uh, lesions, these monkeypox lesions. Um, uh, it, it is, uh, unfortunately, it, it looks like the predominant uh, upswing in the number of cases here have been in the uh, LBGT, well, in, in, in mostly male gay population. Uh, but this virus doesn't have any discrimination in terms of who it infects. It's just a, a question of uh, the higher risk of contact and so on. So in many cases, this kind of looks a little bit more like the HIV uh uh, epidemic that we dealt with a long time ago in terms of trying to stop transmission, uh, except that we actually do have effective vaccines to prevent infection from monkeypox. Uh, but some of the same kinds of uh, uh, epidemiologic infectious disease control measures, which is contact tracing and so on, these are likely to be uh, much more effective than we had with an acute respiratory virus like SARS-CoV-2. So they're very, very different uh, issues here. And, um, you know, and I think a lot of us in public health are, are saying, well, we learned a lot from COVID. Um, Does some of that carry over with regard to dealing with this next infectious disease crisis, which is monkeypox? And I, I'd say the jury's out on that one also. I mean, I think we're, we're more mobilized than we were before. Um, and But we are trying to get a handle on this, and we're seeing, you know, very rapid increase in the number of cases. Another important fact is that monkeypox uh, is much less lethal. It has a much lower mortality rate if you're infected. There have been some reported deaths, I think maybe about four now um, uh, in the States, um, So it's, but it's much less lethal. Uh, and again, the way of spreading the disease is, is much different than, you know, respiratory viruses, which can be carried in air, you know, being in a room with somebody. This is something that involves, you know, physical contact much more so than what, what you see with a re- respiratory virus. So, you know, we should get a better handle on it. Um, I think right now we're scrambling to make sure we can get vaccines distributed out to the higher risk groups. Uh, that is not going particularly great, but um, we're seeing this mobilization right now, vaccine availability. Dr. Brad Pollack, thank you so much for being on our podcast again today. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks. I want to thank you for listening to today's Fight Back COVID Update podcast. You can sign up for notifications for future COVID updates or check out additional podcasts by going to our website at www.healthcareconsumerrights.org. We also welcome your input and stories that we can use on future podcasts. This is Steve Poisner, and this is Fight Back, a podcast by the Healthcare Consumer Rights Foundation. Thanks for listening. 
I look forward to our next podcast. Talk with you soon.